Okay, this is our last hour for this first half of the course, session number 12. And we will concentrate on Revelation chapter 7, the 144,000. And I interpret verse 9 as the salvation of the nations. So we'll take a look at that and a little bit of the detail. And depending on how much time we have at the end, I'd like to spend a little bit of time kind of giving you maybe a summary of what uh, we'll do in the second session. Broad summary. Just a reminder, uh, this morning I gave you uh, a passage out of Deuteronomy and referred to several others where Jewish eschatology is laid out. In fact, there's even things before Deuteronomy, but there, there's some very, very clear things in that Deuteronomy chapter 4 passage. And uh, it alludes to, in that passage, tribulation. I also mentioned that a lot of the prophets uh, refer to this. We read some of them uh, in relationship to those geophysical phenomenon. In fact, I don't know if I have it with me. Probably not. We probably don't have time anyway. Uh, I was going to read a quote from a Jewish rabbi. Uh, the essence of what he said, that this tribulation from the biblical description is so horrendous, and we see this from the book of Revelation, and so severe that he wants the Messiah to come. I mean, you know, every Jew wants the Messiah to come, but uh, they don't want to be alive at the time. <laughs> In other words, it's too horrendous to go through before the Messiah comes. So these are the four major elements of Jewish eschatology, and basically this is what the book of Revelation is all about. Uh, first, or chapters 4 through 18 is this period of tribulation. And I gave you a twofold purpose of the tribulation. Anyone remember the twofold purpose this morning? There's other secondary ones, but uh, I think the main purpose is what? Yeah, salvation of Israel. Uh, this is that Daniel passage where God is bringing things together for them. And even New Testament passages, the salvation of Israel. And the second purpose of the tribulation Judgment and salvation of the nations, but predominantly judgment. That's a major theme. Well, part of it is in that sealed judgment, he's avenging the way Israel, uh, the nations have treated Israel. Yeah. Plus, just sin, sin in general. Yeah, he's bringing all of these prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, they speak of the judgment of the nations. This is kind of the culmination of what all of those prophets talk about. They, they predict, and very specific, more specifically than what we have in the book of Revelation, uh, whole sections on Moab and Egypt and the Ammonite, you know, all of these, this is where it's coming about in this seven year period. And it's all coming together. Uh, the second element is the restoration, clearly, in that Deuteronomy 4 passage. This is what is happening. In fact, this is the beginning in chapter 7. So right off the bat, after he, I, I think he gives a panorama 
In other words, this is what's going to happen. It hints at believers, and if the church isn't here, then these are new believers, because everyone that's a believer will be raptured before this period. So the implication of that fifth seal judgment is there's a new set of believers because they're martyred. So after he gives us the panorama, now he goes back, and I think chapter 7 is how this restoration takes place. And he's going to talk about things that are not even revealed in the Old Testament. Uh, the Old Testament clearly spells out restoration, even the Deuter uh, Deuteronomy uh, 4 passage, and certainly Deuteronomy 30 and other passages, and then you have all of the prophets that speak of Israel's restoration. So that's a huge element, and that's what chapter 7 is partly well, all about, and, but it gives part of the picture of restoration. And uh, the third major element of Jewish eschatology, we said, is Messiah, and that'll come after tribulation, which stimulates restoration, then Messiah arrives. And when Messiah comes, they expected, Jews that is, that he would establish the kingdom. There's Jewish eschatology. That's a summary of chapters 4 through 22. That's why I've kind of emphasized. And I mentioned this morning that uh, the clue that kind of clued me into this is my study of uh, Matthew chapter 24 or the Olivet Discourse because that has clearly nothing to do with the church. Okay. In fact, when you if you insert the church in there, you, you, you just you get a distorted picture of what Jesus is talking about in the Olivet Discourse. It's for the Jews, for the nation. So that's just a reminder. Uh, let's take a quick look. Uh, keep your finger in Revelation. And, and remember that, uh, I've said this several times, but turn to the book of Daniel and let's take a quick look at Daniel chapter 9. And I'll try to do this as quickly as I can. Because the book of Revelation assumes, doesn't explain, it's going to give us these time frames, these groups of three and a half years doesn't tell us where it's at because you know the Old Testament. It assumes you know the Old Testament. So once it starts giving you these uh, as a Jewish student of the word, uh, you say, oh, OK, that's right out of Daniel. So you go back and you bring back Daniel in your thinking. Even Jesus himself, when he talks about what he's dealing with, you know, he refers to Daniel uh, he doesn't say a whole lot. He just says a little phrase that Daniel said. Uh, you know, the abomination that makes desolate uh, that Daniel the prophet talked about. Um, so that's all he says. So you think, oh, okay, that's Daniel 9. That's Daniel 9, verse 24 through 27. Uh, let's just read it. Uh, we don't have time to expound it because I want to get through chapter 7. But I think it, it is foundational to have this background and... Since generally we oftentimes don't have it, it's good to put this here. Now, I was going to put it this morning because it more properly fits with the seal judgment before we even start the whole thing to kind of define and spell out this seven-year period. 
But this morning, I just figured there's just too many things to try to cram it in there. So I kind of put it here at this point. But in verse 24, 70 weeks, I spoke of this this morning, 70 weeks have been decreed. In other words, this is divine decree for your people. This is Daniel's people and your holy city. This is Jerusalem to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. That's Jewish eschatology right there. And he's giving the time frame. I mentioned that the Israel is on a calendar. They are on a time frame. And the clock ticks. In fact, it's mentioned in uh, the uh, Abrahamic covenant when God enters into covenant. And it's spelled out in uh, Genesis 15. The predictions of Israel's future are on a clock. Uh, he gives specific times. The church, there's no time frame. The church is not on a calendar. Uh, we are to expect the Lord at any time, eminently. We can't pinpoint it. So any attempts to set dates is unbiblical. And Jesus even says that in the Olivet Discourse. Anyway, we have 70 weeks, verse 24. This Israel has 70 weeks of history left. And he's going to tell us, and, and he gives a summary here. In other words, God is going to deal with sin. He's going to make atonement. He's going to bring in everlasting righteousness. He's going to seal up vision and prophecy. He's going to deal with all the covenants, all these things within this 70 week period. He's going to deal with Jewish eschatology and it's going to take 70 weeks of years. Verse 25. He's going to talk about 20 or 69 of those weeks. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing, here's the beginning of this this. 70 weeks from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince. Messiah was on a time frame. Israel could have predicted that Jesus Christ was Messiah had they uh, looked at their calendar and, and looked at Daniel. Uh, until Messiah, the prince, will be 70 weeks and 62. So you add that together and what do you get? 69, right? Where's the math major here? Correct? Uh, it will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. Now, when he's writing this, Jerusalem had been destroyed. The Babylonians had leveled it. So he's talking about a rebuilding of, of Jerusalem and in association with Messiah after 69 weeks. Uh, in terms of a timeline, so real quick here, from the issuing of a particular decree, probably Artaxerxes, we don't have time to develop all that, but probably the date kind of varies, but probably somewhere around 444 B.C. From the issuing of a decree, we have these 69 weeks until Messiah the Prince, probably 33 A.D. And by the way, some scholars have worked out the details on this. And you can look it up in some of the commentaries. He says there's seven weeks and 62 weeks. You calculate that out. And if you figure it to the day, as these, this isn't my work. This is what I've looked at other scholars. Uh, it will work out to Palm Sunday when the 69 weeks are completed. So they could have figured it out. 
God gave enough revelation just right here in this passage. And then it goes on. In verse 26, after, to make it work, it says after the 62 weeks, the assumption is you add the other seven as we as well. After the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. And there's the gap. In other words, it's an indefinite time frame after, and it actually happens a week later when Messiah is cut off. And having and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. That's 70 A.D. And its end will come like a flood. Even the end, there will be war, desolations, and uh, desolations are determined. So back to our little timeline here. Messiah is cut off. Uh, an allusion to the crucifixion. The city is destroyed. That's 70 A.D. Daniel predicts it. Uh, this isn't mentioned, but uh, this is, since it's all about us, we have to kind of put ourselves on the map there. 70 weeks, 69 weeks, and then after the 69 weeks, we have some detail. Chapter 9, verse 26. And then 20, verse 27. Uh, or wait a minute, let's see, we have something else here. Let's see. Oh, that's 27. And he will make, verse 27, a firm covenant with the many. Now, who is the he? Uh, goes back to this prince. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. This is after the implied uh, 62 and 7 weeks. After Messiah is cut off. After... Jerusalem is destroyed. He will make a firm covenant with the many, kind of an allusion to the world, basically, for one week. This is commonly referred to as Daniel's 70th, 70th week. That's what we have on the chart here, on our little timeline here. So we have 70, the 70th week kind of hanging out there where the, the clock is put on pause. God just paused it. In terms of Israel. Now, history keeps going. And in fact, we have uh, the church age that transpires. But when this firm covenant is made, is what 27 says, he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. So there's going to be uh, a one week. This starts when that covenant is made. Uh, the rapture will have already taken place and there may be even a time between the rapture and this. The rapture is not what uh, starts the, the clock ticking again. It's the covenant, according to Daniel. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in here's the middle. This is what Jesus refers to. In the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice. And if you put all the details of the book of Revelation together, it appears that... Uh, this personage, this prince, will have so much confidence and so much support, world support, that he elevates himself, as Second Thessalonians 2 tells us, to actually claiming, and Revelation 13 as well, claiming to be God himself. And sets himself on the temple and apparently desecrates it. 
and stops the sacrifice. He will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on, a, on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. That's the little phrase that Jesus refers to. And what that is, is probably, according to what Paul and way Paul interprets this, is, is probably claiming to be God himself. That's, that's a desecration of the temple. This is God's choice of dwelling place to manifest his presence. And here this antichrist claims to be God. That's a desecration. Even until a, de- a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So he will be dealt with as well at the end of uh, uh, the, the passage there. So this is that week that has not started yet. But once it gets started, once the clock is unpaused and things begin to uh, move after that covenant is signed, on the day that that covenant is signed, that starts the clock. And, and now we have something that happens in the middle. So this is divided into two halves. And John, assuming you know Daniel, Daniel 9, uh, he gives us these little indicators. Messiah returns. Uh, Revelation 19.11. Okay. And then we have the kingdom. Uh, when the Messiah comes, we have the kingdom. So, in the book of Revelation, and you'll see these, some, a time frame associated with two witnesses, 1260 days. How many is that? Very good. You're a good mathematician. Either that or you know your scriptures, right? Uh, these are all in the book of Revelation. Uh, Jerusalem is trod 42 months. How, mu- how much is that? Mathematician. <laughs> Three and a half years, right? Uh, Antichrist's authority. It, now, the question is, is which one? And you have to kind of evaluate the context to figure out uh, when these things take place. Antichrist's authority for 42 months. The same 42 months. Uh, these are all in the book of Revelation. Antichrist rises uh, after a time, times, plural, and a half a time. Two and a half again. Now, that's directly out of Daniel. Daniel uses that phraseology. There's also a reference to persecution times, time, uh, time times, and a half a time. Israel flees into the wilderness for 1260 days. It's probably the last half. Now, I take these two witnesses to be the first half. These are explicit, clearly spelled out time frames. Uh, the question is, is whether it's the first three and a half or the second three and a half. Uh, it makes more sense to put the witnesses at the very beginning. In fact, I think... Uh, We'll get to this when we get to chapter 11. But personally, it makes sense that just like John the Baptist precedes the coming of Messiah, these two witnesses who will function similarly. In fact, one of them is Elijah, I think. Uh, in fact, I'm confident that it's going to be Elijah. Uh, it makes sense that these two prophets prophesy at the beginning because usually the prophets are the ones that initiate responses of the Israelites. Uh, so it makes sense that they prophesy 
And then the 144,000 respond. This is the first response. Now, chapter 7 doesn't tell us that. So this is a theological conclusion to just more logic than than any specific verse. And there's debate as to where the witnesses would be placed. Okay? Uh, so that's an important date that I, I put early on. And uh, I think this is the first half. And I think, uh, let's see, this persecution, if I remember right, is the first half. And I think this is the second half of the seven years. And obviously, there are different views, and I'm not going to get off on that for the sake of time. Covenant theology messes eschatology all up because it, almost, it, it makes the church equal to Israel. The Old Testament, Israel, equal to the New Testament church. Uh, and some covenant theologians actually believe in replacement theology where Israel no longer has anything in God's plan. In fact, they have forfeited it, according to them. Yes, a lot of them. Yeah, a lot of them. Well, and they're real fuzzy. In other words, they, they don't deal with the details of the text. Because if you deal with the details of the text, you, you just can't come out with this. But this is pretty common. And, and by the way, not only covenant the, uh, theology, but but most of Christianity holds to some form of the church being in the Old Testament. It's only dispensational theology that makes the distinction, which we have here. Israel distinct from the church. So this viewpoint, very minority viewpoint, uh, not too many will hold to it, just those in our circle. Uh, the majority of the church which would include Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism isn't covenant theology, but they basically hold the same thing. Okay. Uh, this slide, uh, I kind of touched on this earlier. Uh, this is Deuteronomy. If you read Deuteronomy 28, the, the curses and, or the blessings and cursings, this kind of outlines, and I put it on a timeline, uh, starting with the time frame of uh, Deuteronomy uh, before the conquest. So, what is it, 1405, 1405 B.C.? Uh, we have promises that, and, and we see this worked out throughout Israel's history. When, when Israel is faithful, God prospers them. And God blesses them, and, and He blesses them in a, a variety of ways. And a lot of detail in that Deuteronomy 28 passage. Uh, but He also curses them, or He disciplines them. This is kind of a map of their whole history. Uh, it also speaks, that same passage speaks of their exile. Deuteronomy 28, and also the uh, Deuteronomy 4 passage. Uh, very specific. This exile is a twofold exile. They they went into exile into the Babylon after the Babylonian captivity. It also speaks of restoration. Now this isn't a complete. In fact, it's barely a restoration. It's it's more almost a preparation for the coming of Messiah. It's it's a pretty weak restoration. All of those passages ultimate uh, refer or not refer but uh, anticipate. 
this other exile that takes place after Christ. So there's actually two exiles of Israel where they're scattered amongst the nations. And I think most of the eschatological passages actually refer to the second exile. And the real restoration is during this period of time that we're looking at. The tribulation. Mm-hmm. And there's judgment. Uh, there's tribulation. So you can you can put another exile over here and then another restoration over here. The ultimate restoration. And Deuteronomy also talks about the ultimate blessing. Now, it doesn't specify the kingdom because that is further revelation until we get to the Davidic covenant. So, But it leaves, in other words, all the room is left for this ultimate blessing that uh, Moses reveals or God reveals to Moses. Uh, that's basically Israel's history and in a thumbnail sketch, Israel's eschatology. That's what the book of Revelation is dealing with. So what we're looking at here is they are an elect nation. They fail. Uh, through history, uh, they have suffered attempts to destroy them. The latest, Hitler. There'll be other attempts during the Great Tribulation. But God assures that they will be restored. And that's what chapter 7 is all about. Okay? So we have this seven-sealed scroll. The origin is in heaven. Uh, we talked about the one seated on the throne and the worship that follows. Then the Lamb is the focus of chapter 5. And the scroll, that seven-sealed scroll and worship that follows, only the Lamb is worthy to open it. And then we have the openings. That's chapter 6. Six of the seal judgments. And I said I view it as a panorama of the whole seven-year period. So that's the seven-year period. And then uh, part of this subdivision, I see chapter 7, including, including it. This is kind of the outcome on earth. In other words, as these judgments are coming about, we have an outcome on earth that affect people. And there's a response of Israel. That's what the judgments are designed to do, is to steer them in the direction of Messiah. As well as just uh, uh, working of the Spirit of God. Uh, that result, I think the uh, 144,000 results in what we have in uh, Revelation 7-9, a great multitude. And then we have another worship scene. In fact, uh, I think the 144,000 is a, a, a scene on earth and then it shifts to a heavenly scene. That's why it's outcome on earth and in heaven. So who are the 144,000 that we read in the other hour? Let me read it again. Verse 4, And I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So it's pretty clear. It's simple. It's not hard. But because people are not aware of Scripture, we have all these different views. And you're aware some of the cults, particularly Jehovah's Witnesses in their early years, claimed that they were the 144,000. It would be them... And it would be when their number were completed, then Christ would return. Well, they had to modify that and kind of go into spiritual exegesis. Because <laughs> they exceeded the number 144,000. And they played gymnastics with that number. So, the Jehovah's Witnesses claimed to be the 144,000. 
Obviously, we reject that view. Uh, much of the church just sees it as uh, indefinite, kind of an indefinite number or just an indication, a large number of the faithful. Only God knows. He knows hearts. But it represents the faithful. So it includes the church. Okay? This would be the majority view. Be the majority view of the overall broad church. Uh, Post-tribulationism would see 144,000 new believers that are converted during the tribulation period. So all those saints in there, most of them would be the 144,000. And we uh, reject post-tribulationism. The text, I think, is clear. I, I don't know how more explicit you can be. You have to really get around the text. Because uh, it says 144,000, a very specific number, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Okay. No, I don't know. How do you get around it? And if that's not clear enough, verse 5, from the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. Are you getting the point? We need to read 12 of them very specifically. You, know, you, num- you number the 12 tribes, multiply it by 12,000, you end up with 144,000. So you have to spiritualize every one of those numbers. And I think uh, the Holy Spirit is, is just kind of reiterating and re- just kind of going through the list there. Uh, the only thing that is different here is this... Listing of the tribes, which is a little bit different than some of them. But if you study all of the listings of the tribes, very few of them agree. They have variations, so it's not unusual. Uh, There's a few little unusual things here. Um, For example, Dan is omitted. That's that's a major tribe. Uh, That was... Saul in the Old Testament, that was his tribe. And was Paul Paul was a member no, wait a minute, he was Benjamin, right? Yeah. Uh so the tribe of Dan is omitted. And there's another interesting thing. Um Ephraim is omitted and Joseph is included. Uh that's not so unusual because that occurs elsewhere where sometimes Joseph is included. Um, in some lists, Dan and Zebulun are omitted in First Chronicles 7.12. Uh, so we have a, a few little strange things going on. But uh, other than that, it's, it's pretty clear. Dan is omitted. Uh, most scholars believe that he was probably omitted because of the history and the background of idolatry and referring to, I can't remember what specific events in the Old Testament. And same with Ephraim. Ephraim had a major problem. All of the tribes had a problem with idolatry, but particularly Dan and Ephraim. Okay. Uh, here's another interesting note. The Levites are included and generally they are omitted. So that's a little strange. To make the, the, the full 12. Okay. 
there's a lot. I'll, I'll leave the discussion uh, to your commentaries as you study them. Uh, Joseph is added. We mentioned that one. Uh, remember, the two tribes, uh, Manasseh and Ephraim, are from Joseph. So sometimes you have both of them without Joseph, and sometimes you have Joseph included. So we have 12, 12,000 of each of these tribes that are listed to make up 144,000. Now, this is just kind of the sequence as to how I see these things working themselves out. The only little clue that we have in terms of a time frame, this appears beginning in chapter 7. Uh, it seems to be at the very beginning before the judgments come. So this would be at the beginning of the seven-year period. So these 144,000, if it's at the beginning, then they are regenerated at the very beginning and protected throughout that seven-year period. They have a particular function. Their function seems to be, we'll see some detail in the later texts, uh, their function seems to be as at least evangelist, if not more than that, in terms of ministry. Their ministry is a worldwide ministry. And by the way, uh, Jews are still scattered throughout the, the known world. And I would not be surprised if God just calls people from different places all over the world and they're members of the 144,000. They know the culture. There's probably, I'm sure they're Egyptian Jews. And there's going to be probably some Egyptian Jews that are converted, turn to Jesus Christ and have a great ministry of the Egyptian people as well as other Egyptian Jews. And there'll be Jews elsewhere in other parts of the world where... Uh, I think God obviously is sovereign over history. The exile, not all of the Jews will return to Israel. Uh, I, I think he will select some and they will stay in lands that they were raised in. Uh, they know the language, they know the culture, uh, they know the people. So it makes sense that God would use them as his evangelists for this period of time uh, to bring those that he has chosen to salvation. So, I, the sequence, now, this brings in some other passages. Uh, this is Ezekiel, was it 37, the vision of the dry bones? Uh, I, I think that that vision has, has a two-stage fulfillment, the uh, prophecy of the dry bones. That's 37, right? My, my mind's kind of getting fuzzy here. Verify that so that I get it right on the tape here. Uh, where Ezekiel sees a vision of dry... Is that right? Yeah, okay. Vision of dry bones, and remember, flesh comes upon them and ligaments and everything else that's described there. Uh, and they come to life out of the graves. Uh, I think that's a picture of Israel in exile, where God is bringing them back to life as a nation. And I think there's a and, and it, there's a, a second stage is a spiritual regeneration. The first stage seems to be a political restoration. We may have seen the beginnings of that already in 1948 with the reestablishment of the nation of Israel. There's debate over that in terms of scholars from our perspective, but 
uh, personally, I, I, I don't see any reason for that. Uh, there won't be a spiritual restoration because if Jews would be spiritually restored, then what? They'd be raptured. <laughs> Uh, so their spiritual restoration will not take place. And what Paul describes in Romans 11, when all of Israel will be saved, that will not take place until the clock starts ticking again and the church is gone. Okay? So there's first a political restoration. Now, if you want to put that in the tribulation, you're going to have too many things in there. So I, I, I think God is already working. The, the clock isn't ticking yet. But the groundwork is set. And, and it makes sense. Uh, you, you're not going to have all of these things just automatically. The switch is turned on. You're going to have all of the conditions set in place before the clock is unpaused. And one of them, uh, the main player in this whole thing is Israel. So uh, I, don't, I have no problem seeing 1948 as... God beginning to fulfill that Ezekiel 37 passage. Uh, after that, I see, obviously, this is clear. In other words, Daniel tells us, this starts the clock, clock, covenant with Antichrist. So the political restoration could be going on now. The next major event in Israel's eschatology is the covenant with Antichrist. Uh, from the church, we have the rapture, but that's not what kicks off the the clock. Okay. I have already mentioned uh, tend to see the two witnesses uh, come early. Uh, we have a time frame. It's a three and a half in, in chapter 11. Uh, we won't look it up because we haven't got there yet. But chapter 11 gives a time frame there. The three and a half years. It makes sense that they would come shortly after this covenant of Antichrist raised up and they will do like what John the Baptist does. Uh, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they may even say that. They may say, repent, Israel, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Messiah is here or uh, nearly near, near to come. I think they prophesy and as they prophesy, the first converts, the first response is a conversion experience of these 144,000. And with the technology today, they could hear this over the Internet and say, yeah, uh, everything's in place and my heart's been prepared and I believe that Messiah, I believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Okay? So I put the conversion, uh, there's a little bit uh, uncertainty on this because it doesn't give the time frame like it does the two witnesses. The question is, is the two witnesses, the first half or the second half makes more sense the first half to me even though it's in chapter 11. Chapter 11 is another interlude. It's not in the kind of the section that deals more with chronology. Uh, a spiritual restoration of the nation. Paul says all Israel shall be saved. Not every single Israelite, because some of them are excluded from the kingdom, but all in the sense that all rejected the Messiah. Did every single Israelite reject the Messiah in the first coming? No. Uh, the early church was predominantly Jewish. But Israel as a nation and officially rejected their Messiah. 
So also during the tribulation, when Paul says all Israel, he's talking about all Israel in the sense of them as an entity, as a nation will be saved. And these restoration passages in the Old Testament uh, speak of this. And I believe the 144,000 will be instrumental in that. And part of what God will do is he will purify those saints. That's the persecution. And most of them won't survive. Most of them will die. So I see that as the sequence. If you want to look at it on timeline... This starts the clock. Okay, it's ticking. Tick, 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 tick. Next thing, two witnesses. And I would see that at the very beginning. Or two prophets. 144,000. And, and by the way, uh, we'll see confirmation of some of these things in some of the other passages that we get to. If I can get this thing to keep conversion, widespread conversion. Um, this is the chart that I told you about earlier. A panorama of the whole tribulation, trumpet judgments. Could extend into the first half a little, maybe. I don't know. Uh, we don't have a time frame. Bowl judgments, probably even more closely concentrated towards the end. So we have a paralleling of these. And by the way, if you look at the bowl judgments, the last bowl judgment is very similar to the, the sixth seal judgment. That's why this seems to work better for me. And in terms of chapters, chapters 4 through 11 seems to be uh, dealing with this entire period. And then chapters 12 through 18 dealing with uh, a different perspective of this same period of time. Chapter 19, the second coming. Chapter 20, uh, the kingdom, 21 and 22. Um, let's skip over this. Uh, this I, I basically did this with the Deuteronomy passages. That's it. I thought I had something else. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I was going to use that last slide. This one. Okay. Before we do that, let's, let's read the rest of the text and highlight the things that we wanted to highlight there. In verse 9... Uh, I didn't read all of the 12 tribes. They're very similar. Uh, we pointed out the differences there. After these things, I looked and a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation. And if that's not clear enough, all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb. There's the Lamb again. There's the throne again. See, the... the the things that are developed early in the book of Revelation recur, so we already know what they are. So we'll go back to chapters 4 and 5. We have the Lamb in 5, the throne in 4. Now this multitude is clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. White robes, these are regenerate people. Where are they? Where is this scene? This is different from the scene that we looked at in 1 through 8 of chapter 7. This is a heavenly scene. Alright? They're before the throne and before the Lamb and they're clothed in white garments. They're not in their grubby clothes where they have blood on all over it. On earth, in persecution, 
but they have white robes and palm branches. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, uh, they do the same thing that we have in chapters 4 and 5. Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Praise and worship. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders. See the same scene. This is that heavenly scene. Around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And by the way, there's the Amen. In other words, this, this is truth. This is absolute truth. When we say Amen, think of absolute truth. When we pray in Christ's name, Amen, He is absolute truth. Remember what we said this morning, uh, how He identifies Himself. Well, this great multitude, I see it. Uh, this is a theological conclusion, because it doesn't tell us specifically here. Uh, I conclude from the fact that this is a heavenly scene. Uh, these appear, and they, they, these are people from every tribe, every tongue, etc. I conclude these are martyrs. These are, this is another set of martyrs. These are people that, that died. They're before the throne. These are the nations. Uh, and to add to this theological conclusion, it doesn't say between eight and nine... I think this is the result of the ministry of the 144,000. This is the outcome of the ministry of the 144,000. They have a tremendous impact on the world. This, in fact, what, what does it say? How many of them are there? Does it have a specific number? This is reasons why we should take the numbers when they're specified. We should take them literally because here it says what? From every tribe, uh, let's see, oh, a great multitude, which no one could count. In other words, an innumerable number. So when you see 200 million, I think it means 200 million. When it says 144,000, I think it means 144,000. When it says 1,000 years, I think it means 1,000 years. If John wanted to say the 200 million were an innumerable army, he could have used the same word that he has here. A multitude of military people or something. So here we have the, the greatest revival that the world has ever seen. Uh, Billy Graham would uh, feel like his ministry was minuscule. There will be responses. And by the way, this is the only positive thing in the, whole great, in the whole period of time. This is it right here. Chapter 7. Everything else is judgment. 8 and 9 are the trumpet judgments. 10, we have a heavenly scene. Kind of a strange chapter with a little book. Chapter 11, we have two witnesses that are killed. It tells us about their prophesying. And then we have the seventh trumpet, which kind of anticipates the second coming. So it's a little bit positive, but basically chapter seven is the only positive thing that happens in, in this whole seven year period. Chapter 12, 13 are uh, 
the major characters. I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. Let's, let's finish the text and then I'll give you an overview here. So we have a, an innumerable multitude that I take as the product of the ministry of the 144,000. And it appears that this great multitude, they are martyred. So the implication here is the majority of people that become Christians during this period of time don't survive the seven years. Then verse 13, and one of the elders, well, let's see, 12. Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and an honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And 13, one of the elders answered, saying to me, these who are clothed in white robes, who are they? And from where have they come? Now, they're in heaven. So the question here, one of the elders, he's representative of the church. Who are these guys? They're not part of the church. We're dispensationalists now. <laughs> we see a distinction here. Who are these guys? They're not part of us. And I said to him, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of what? The great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So these are saints that are converted by the blood of the Lamb during the great tribulation. They're not members of the church. They're dispensationalists. That's how Jesus identifies it. Um, I'm not sure this is the, the parallel with what Jesus is talking about. Okay, I think he's identifying it in terms of just its magnitude. You know, its greatness. Uh, the point being is these are the ones that come out of that period of time and they've washed their robes, etc., for this reason, they are before the throne. Um, they've been cleansed. The throne of God. And they serve Him day and night. Notice we're going to continually serve Him. Service is not an evil thing. The fall was not work, or work was not a product of the fall. Work was before the fall, but now after the fall, work becomes laborious. Uh, I think we'll serve him in eternity, but it'll be satisfying. Uh, a lot of things that we do is, are real satisfying when we feel a sense of accomplishment and we'll have that. So we'll serve him and it'll be a, a, a pleasure to serve him. We'll have no hindrances. They serve him day and night in, the, in his temple. This is the heavenly temple. And he who sits on the throne shall spread his tabernacle over them. So there's a heavenly tabernacle. Uh, they shall hunger no more. <clears throat> so they, they've been freed from the curse. Shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun beat on down on them, nor heat. So this kind of looks looks ahead. This is a heavenly scene. Verse 17, For the Lamb in the center of the throne shall be their shepherd and shall guide them to springs of water of life, uh, garden conditions, restoration, like Genesis before the fall. And God shall wipe every tear 
from their eyes. So we have who they are. They came out of the great tribulation and some detail of future blessings that they'll experience. They're done with earth. They're done with uh, uh, the experience of what we experience. Saints. Well, it probably includes Jews because it's from every tribe and tongue. The 144,000 are exclusively Jewish. And they have, yes, and they have a particular ministry. And I think they will have an effective ministry amongst fellow Jews as well. I think fellow Jews would be included here. So this is a hybrid of peoples who have a special place at the throne. Yes. And we're not even in this scene. We're up there. We're represented by the elders. And we, we may be there as well. No. That's Brad in verse 14. Could be. So they could be. They could all be mixed. I know we have the elders, but. Okay. No, this group has come out of tribulation. Yes. This group is not the church. No. That, there's the distinction. Makes it clear right there. See, it all fits. The, the details fit the premillennial, pre-tribulation um, interpretation of. Eschatology. But it, it's the first time a hybrid group has jointly served Christ in heaven. That's mm, Yeah, but uh, was. They're all dressed the same. Yeah, but think about it this way: uh, Was Noah Jewish? Was Noah part of the nation of Israel? What about all the others in Noah's age and shortly after that? It's not till. Uh, really, uh, Joshua, that we really have a nation. So, what are all those people before they're a nation of Israel? Well, I think this is a picture of what they're going to be. Mm-hmm. They're going to all be together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we're going to be the bride. Right. Separate. Right. Distinct. Yeah, and I think those distinctions remain. Okay? Good. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I hope I burned it in a negative way to avoid the, the, the thought. <laughs> That's right. Well, let me give you a, a real brief kind of overview. I kind of did it real quick. I, I just forgot that this was a slide I was going to use it for in the time that we have remaining. Um, after chapter 7, we kind of come back. Uh, well, we have a heavenly scene, and then it comes back to earth in verse 5, uh, chapter 8. And the angel took the censer, and he filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. Uh, there follow, followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes and lightning and an earthquake. I think the imagery there, a storm is coming again. We saw a storm coming before. Here's another storm kind of introducing... Setting the stage for uh, verse 6. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared them themselves to sound them. 
Now we have a second set of judgments. This is chapters 8 and 9. They're called trumpet judgments because the sounding of a trumpet precedes each of them. Uh, chapter 10, we have kind of a mysterious chapter. So we have these seven bold judgments. And if this chronology fits, then we're, now we're paralleling uh, probably... Uh, even persecution, I, I think persecution probably starts and martyrdom, the, the, the uh, fifth seal judgment, it probably doesn't start and stop. I think when it starts, and it probably starts early, it just probably goes throughout. So now you're having martyrdoms and now you're also having, uh, towards the end, these cataclysmic events. And you're still having the after effects of war. You're still probably under famine conditions. So these things just kind of continue. And now on top of that, you have these trumpet judgments. Uh, and, and by the way, these trumpet judgments, some of them remind us of Egypt. And uh, the experience and the bowl judgments particularly uh, resemble some of the things in Egypt, which is... Remember, the imagery and these things go back to the Old Testament. Why do they remind us of Egypt? Because I think Egypt, we have prototypes. We have examples. In other words, God can do this on a localized scale. Why can't he do it worldwide? So we have similar judgments that God already has set a precedent. He's already done this. It's just not as extensive as what we'll have at this period of time. Of the world. Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, and the Israelites will experience another deliverance. Okay? Yeah. So so now we have these trumpet judgments. And then on top of that, uh, well, uh, that's through chapter 9. Uh, chapter 10, we have this little book and an interpretation about it. And this is a closed book, so we don't have a lot of insight into it. So there's a lot of mystery about that one. Chapter 11, the first part focuses on these two witnesses, the, the prophets, and I put them in your chronology there. Uh, after the two witnesses, then we have in chapter 11, uh, well, they're killed. Uh, most of chapter 11 deals with the two witnesses and their, their outcome. And, and I think at the beginning, so they're killed in the middle. God raises them from the dead. Chapter 11, verse 15, we have the seventh trumpet judgment. And what it is, is almost a preview of the second coming. So, this is it seems to be at the end. That's another reason why I see this as a parallel here. Because it kind of foreshadows, or not foreshadows, pre-shadows the second coming. And then, after that... We have a total shift beginning in chapter 12 and 13. I see that as the major characters. And we're going to have Israel as a major character, Satan as a major character, uh, Christ as a major character, the man-child. Angels are going to be major characters. We've already seen that. And then we're going to see two beasts, one out of the sea and one another, the second beast. They are going to be major characters. So, a little explanation concerning them. And then chapter 14, uh, we have a series of visions that John sees in terms of 
kind of the final kind of announcements of some final things. A final gospel, probably presentation by an angel. An angel's going to proclaim the gospel, and it sounds like a worldwide thing. He's going to use the internet. <laughs> so you better get internet connection. <laughs> uh, also, um, Babylon is announced. Babylon is fallen. So everything's just kind of wrapping things up. And chapter 15 is introductory to chapter 16, where we have this series of judgments. And the last bowl judgment is very similar to the sixth seal judgment. That's why it seems to make sense to put these in parallel. Uh, and then chapter 19, obviously, is the second coming of Christ. And chapter 20 is a thumbnail sketch of... Uh, the kingdom. And we don't have a lot of detail. In fact, the only new thing about the kingdom is that it's millennial. Uh, it kind of just reviews, doesn't give us any events, basically. It just talks about ruling and us ruling with him or whoever's in view there ruling with him. And then I see chapters 21 and 22 as a picture of the eternal state. And that's the end of the book of Revelation for now. Until Ray's second coming. <laughs> it's blasphemous. <clears throat> let's pray and let's forgive or confess our sins. <laughs> Father, we praise you for just this book, which is one of the greatest revelations you've given uh, to all of mankind. And we praise you for it. And, and even though it deals with things in the future and even though it deals with Israel and not so much us, uh, it gives us a lot of assurance and it gives us confidence because we know that you are sovereign and you are orchestrating events. So when we stub our little toes, uh, it's, you're not surprised by it. When we uh, find ourselves in a predicament, uh, you know the outcome and we can trust in you and we know that you have a plan and uh, it doesn't matter if we even die for our faith. Uh, you have a plan uh, that is glorious and we praise you for that. So we praise you for just the revelation of who you are. And uh, one of the main things is that you are judge. And that's a sobering thing. But also uh, it's an it's a encouraging, encouraging thing because we know that as judge, you're going to bring finality to sin and evil. And uh, we anticipate that. So we praise you for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.